in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and my co-host, Ms. Lizzie Haynes from Louisville, Kentucky. Lizzie Haynes, how you doing? Lizzie. I am doing great. Excited to be here. Okay. The Godfather himself is back. Mr. John Flack from the Greensboro, North Carolina area. How you doing, sir? Doing great, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, today has a scary movie character that ends up being not so scary at all. What is a movie that scared you, that you, but you came to love it in the end? John. Pee-wee Herman's Big Adventure. Uh, large Marge kind of freaked me out when I was a little kid but I loved that movie that's awesome that's that's early that's Burton's first and yes that's his job to scare you a little bit but then also to make you love it so that's textbook Tim Burton wonderful now Lizzie how about you what's a movie that scared you but you came to love it in time I really went with a classic villain for this one. So Star Wars scared me as a kid because of Darth Vader. And naturally, as I got older, I learned to love him. And, you know, as time goes on, it's like it's really, he's the main character. I know that's obviously a hot, not so hot take because everybody loves Darth Vader. But it's about Luke and it's about the Jedis. But, I mean, really, you're buying the ticket for Vader. Wow. If Chad were here, he would give you a three big pats on the back for that one. So, I mean, um, it, mine is going to be The Wizard of Oz. The, the Monkeys, The uh, Wicked Witch of the West, The Lady on a Bicycle. Not a very nice lady, even before she was a witch. Um, a lot of scary stuff in this movie. Poppy fields, blowing gas all over the place. Um, I love this movie now, but it it was it kind of got me when I first saw it. I was about four when I saw it. So um, I remember kind of like uh, being like Kevin McAllister, where you put your hands over your eyes and then kind of like part them a little bit on one eye. So now, what's the last movie you saw, John? I actually saw Wakanda Forever. Oh, um, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers. So <laughs> much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. And um, Lizzie, what's the last movie you saw? I saw Spirited. The newest Christmas movie with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds on Apple TV Plus, and I gotta say I had no expectation going into it. it. Anyone that knows me knows that I love a good musical. So from about five minutes in, I looked over at my husband and said, "I have an instinct that I'm gonna love this movie." There are some Christmas movies. I would say that you've got your categories that we're going to put Christmas movies in one being your classics you watch it every year and then your other where it's kind of more of your hallmark Christmas movies where you watch it once you enjoy the experience and you don't really ever care to revisit it again unfortunately I'm going to put spirited in the latter 
But it was a good time. While I was watching it, I enjoyed it. The cast has me intrigued right away, for sure. These are people I like, so I'm interested in both of these movies. Last movie I saw, I've been doing a lot of these Disney animated movies. This will probably continue over the next year or so. Uh, I watched with my my three-year-old son. We watched The Great Mouse Detective from 1986. So, mm. oh, so good. That's, that's I loved that one. So, yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of throwbacks to movies I saw when I was a kid. And I know I saw them, but I have no idea of how I take them in as an adult. I'm kind of afraid going back to some of them. And you know what? They usually don't disappoint me. So um, this one didn't disappoint me either. So I, I, I'd say you can still have a great time with the great mouse detective. He's not the mediocre mouse detective for a reason. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie, what movie are we going to cover today? We are going to cover Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. All right. Now, for those of you who haven't been following the show for like the last four or five, five years, uh, John and I did this one, like one of our first 10 or 12 episodes in the very first season with Home Alone 1. So we are going through this series one out of it, one one for every four years or so. So in four years, we must come back together and do Home Alone three. Then so, absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Russell tells me it's palatable. And in eight years, we have to do Home Alone four, which that'll take that'll take a little more constitution. <laughs> I'll be sick that day. <laughs> You'll be sick like the kid from Home Alone three. Got it. Exactly. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York comes out in 1992. It grosses $28 million. It is, compared to the 110000 of the original, the budget was $28 million. So this budget was way, 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 way more than the original. It grosses $173.5 million domestically. It even starts off stronger than the first Home Alone movie, which did very, very well. And it doesn't quite finish out as strong throughout its full run, but it still grosses an enormous amount of money in the United States and finishes with $359 million worldwide. So it places at number two in the box office that year. Very strong finish. And it is only second behind Aladdin, and it comes in ahead of Batman Returns. So uh, strong performances from the box office here. Now, IMDb does not treat this movie too kindly. It gives it a 6.8 IMDb rating. Now, that's not very strong, and the, tr- the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this a scathing 35%, and, oh. and the audience score is a 62%. Now, all of this surprises me, but John, you've, t- you've seen this movie before. Are these, are these reviews? Are these, are these fair? You know, I just recently saw those reviews myself, I like doing the homework, and I was surprised myself, and I had to ask myself why. And I, I think it's just I saw it in the theaters. Like, I was so excited for it. It's, I'm always going to have a good time with this movie. So, uh, you know, I've seen this before. Has it changed for you coming back to it as an adult? Like, do you feel like it's bottoming out for you as you've grown older? No, but it's a different perspective. But it has aged in certain ways. But I think uh, it's weird to see it from a, a parent's perspective at this point sure no doubt and lizzie Great. are you are you with the 35 percent of the critics who like this movie yes i i love this movie i'm shocked by that i'm so shocked that it's not higher i would say you know there's those great conversations about the 
the very few sequels that are able to surpass the original, or at least just the, you know, at minimum, um, at minimum meets the expectations that the original had. And I would say, you know, you hear all the time of Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back and Godfather 1 and 2. And I honestly, I would say I'm going to say Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. I think it's better than the original. So I'm shocked Ooh, to wow. hear that. That's as, hot as, that's as hot as the pizza that they opened up in front of the limousine with <laughs> steam right. rolling out of it. <laughs> no. I love this movie. It never gets old for me. Like I was saying earlier how you've got the classics and then you've got the movies that you watch them once and, and then kind of just file them away for me. I don't know if I ever remember a time where this wasn't a movie that I, that I watched during the holiday season. It's just a classic. It's full disclosure. Uh, we are probably the age where we absorb this at a point where we're very forgiving to it. So, <laughs> I mean, every movie's good when I see, I would have seen this when I was, uh, let's see, 92, I would have been seven years old when this dropped. And, but and I have seen it along the way. But I have to say, I've changed my perspective. I, I've liked it as a teenager. I've liked it as somebody in my 20s. And even as I've become a parent, as like John said, I, I do see it a little bit differently now. But yeah. I still I still really like this movie. I have the two-pack of the first two movies and my Blu-ray. And I enjoy them both. And I especially enjoy them around Christmas time. So um, they, they go well together and... You know, I just, uh, these, these, I find these reviews troubling. <laughs> yes, I, I think it holds up well over time. And I'm, I'm, well, I, I'm, I an, I'm, I'm, Rachel. Yeah. That made it very different. How old is she now? She, she's, 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 she's six, five. five. Okay, five. Yeah. Yeah. She laughs at different things. That, it makes it like more fun. Like I look at it a little differently with her. Well, she's the perfect age then because that's where we, I took in Home Alone 1 when it dropped and I, I fell in love with that movie then too. So I'm with you on that. My son is my oldest is six and he, he loves the home alone, both one and two. And it is a completely different experience when you're watching it through the eyes of your child. And it is, uh, it just, I, I agree. It kind of reinvigorates the excitement for it. Yeah. Now there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right. Lizzie, for those who haven't seen Home Alone 2 Lost in New York since 1992, do you want to refresh people's memories? Let's do it. Our movie opens up one year after we last saw Kevin and his family at Christmas after he was left at home. This time, the family has decided to spend the holiday in Florida. The day before, the family is all at the children's school recital where Kevin Solo is ruined by his older brother, Buzz. Later that night, Buzz gives a phony apology and his entire family soaks it up, which infuriates Kevin, 
leaving him to yell at his family and rant about how awful they are for making him celebrate Christmas in a climate with no Christmas trees. That morning, the family is running late again, and they all rush to the airport with Kevin in tow. As the family rushes, Kevin falls behind to make sure he doesn't drop his talkboy recorder that houses all of his family members' voices and infamous Tommy gun quotes. Kevin looks up to see who he thinks is his dad running onto the plane and follows him on board. It's only when he's landed that he realizes that he's boarded the wrong plane and is now in New York City. Kevin's family and their usual assembly line don't even realize that Kevin's missing until they arrive in Florida. Meanwhile, Kevin goes to the one place he's seen in commercials, the plaza. Luckily, Kevin has his dad's bag in hand containing his wallet. And using his talk boy, Kevin calls the front desk, makes a reservation using a slow, deep voice, and later explains the check-in and sells the receptionist on a fake story that his dad's working in the city. Kevin successfully checks into a suite complete with room service ice cream. The concierge suspects that Kevin is up to no good, and after some callbacks from Tommy Gunn with the help of his talk boy, Kevin is able to fool him into thinking his dad's in the room. In a final attempt to catch Kevin, the concierge treats Kevin to pizza and a limo and to buy some time to dig up dirt on Kevin and potentially his stolen credit card. While out, Kevin discovers a toy store, Duncan's Toy Chest. The owner tells Kevin all purchases will be donated to the children's hospital. Kevin makes a donation, and the owner, in exchange for his kindness, gives Kevin an ornament with two turtle doves. On his way out, Kevin is stopped by his old enemies, the wet bandits. He flees over to the plaza, but is met with the concierge who informs him that his card is in fact stolen, and Kevin runs back out right into Harry and Marv. The two tell Kevin their plan to rob Duncan's toy chest and all the money intended for the children's hospital. Kevin manages to get away and run into Central Park. It's there that he meets a woman feeding his pigeons. Her pigeons, excuse me. She appears frightening, but it turns out she's kind and welcomes Kevin's company. The two sneak into Carnegie Hall, and the two realize they have more than common that they originally thought and become friends. Kevin isn't done yet with the bandits and decides to foil their plan. Kevin, utilizing his uncle's empty house, rigs it together with the perfect traps for the bandits. He meets them at Duncan's toy chest, sets the alarm off, and lures them into the house where they fall victim to Kevin's plan. Kevin and the bandits end up in Central Park, and just when Kevin needs him the most, his new friend saves the day with the help of her pigeons. Kevin's family is now in New York City, and his mom knows exactly where to find him by the one thing he wanted, a Christmas tree. There, her and Kevin reunite and return to the hotel where the family enjoy a Christmas morning at the plaza. That morning, Kevin finds his new friend and gives her one of the turtle doves as a sign of their friendship. And they all live happily ever after. That's right. And so I've got to say, one of the things that makes me wonder, or the only thing that really can come to my mind, is the Home Alone 2 here is retreading a lot of ground from the first movie. There are many similarities, aren't there? John, talk about how this movie kind of retraces the footsteps of the first one. I mean, from the beginning of the movie, it's just like deja vu. Like... <laughs> I can't even wonder it's like how the family can't even feel. It's like, does anyone think something's bad, bad is going to happen? This is exactly how it happened last year. They do add in new elements, of course. Uh, but, you know, that they, they really retread a lot of the same things. I mean, just with the brother there and the uncle, 
everyone gets mad. It's kind of not Kevin's fault, like, but he could have done better. You know, going to sleep on the third floor. And we're going to wind up somewhere differently. And this time it was New York, just not staying at home. Yeah, Fuller still can't beat his bedwetting problems either. And uh, <laughs> Poor guy. Uncle Frank's still a cheapskate. And, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, Marvin Harry. more the same. Yeah, Marvin Harry are back. They brought the same robbers back. Which, Lizzie, is this a good thing? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think there's, I mean, it's a, it's a movie about a 10-year-old. So I think that you suspend your disbelief and take it with a grain of salt. I think when you watch the movie, you just know that you're going to have fun. And so they just recycle the same formula that they used in the first one, which I can appreciate for people who are wearing something new and fresh. But I think this movie really is just a love letter to the first movie. And I love that about it. They take all of the elements that make the first movie iconic and just elevate them. Yeah. And I think that this is probably what people are probably hammering on. Like the fact that sometimes a sequel is defined as lazy. Like I'm going to use the hangover two and three as kind of like examples of movies that are retreads of we need to hold the same framework and we we everybody likes this and we can't change it too much and i think 22 jump street makes a lot of comparisons of and pokes fun at like you know satirizing the fact that sequels do this but i'm gonna make a case and say home alone is a very very enjoyable movie for me and when you go beat for beat remakes including keeping the christmas spirit in it You've kept all the elements that worked for me so well that even if there are some diminished returns, you have an incredibly enjoyable movie for me still. I still love Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. A very talented cast. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, you've added other things that I like into it too. Rob Schneider and Tim Curry are very funny in here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm you got me on record. Rob Schneider's funny in here. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, they've, they've done some great things things in the cartoony nature of how these i think the pranks are dialed up a notch they're more deadly technically and i found that some of the critics got on their high horse about this they said you know ebert said cartoon violence isn't funny in real life we can hear their bones actually breaking when they hit the pavement and it's like wow what an incredibly stuck up thing to say i mean it's it, it's ridiculous marv's getting electrocuted and he turns into a skeleton it is looney tunes <laughs> in real life it's funny and like i disagree completely with ebert it's incredibly funny if it wasn't funny the mask wouldn't be funny it in the mask is hilarious so i mean i don't know maybe i'm low brow in my humor but i i disagree highly with the notion that this is disturbing that this mouthy kid's running off on his own and and, you know, getting into, th- you know, throwing pipes and bricks at people that would actually kill somebody. It, it's not, that's not the reality we're in, Lizzie. You pointed it out. Like, you know what you're in for. You especially know what you're in for because you've done it before. So Exactly, yes. My biggest complaint is going to be the title is We're Not Home Alone. We're in New York alone. That's it. <laughs> but we did talk about so some things that they did new here. John, what are some new things that you were enjoying here? Because there are some differences. Well, something for me was the concierge, you know, Tim Curry. Like, I don't know, him having a more lovable villain in the process, uh, a more playful one, as it were. I I think that that was like an added element that brought something fresh. 
That's a good one. Lizzie, you've mentioned before that this is this one's actually higher for you than the original one. You put that your cards on the table early. What are some things that put this one over the first one for you? I love it so much. Well, I think this one has a little bit more Christmas spirit in it than the second, or excuse me, than the original. I think the original has a really big focus on family. And yes, it is during Christmas time, but I think the reality of it is that it just so happened to be, it's kind of is like Die Hard, I suppose, in a way, where it's just a movie that's taking place at a Christmas party, so therefore it's a Christmas movie. I mean, this could just easily be parent, the first one could just easily be the parents are going on vacation. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christmas time. There's just a really big emphasis on family. Whereas this year, I think, being in New York and, you know, Kevin has this, he's on this high horse about Christmas trees and just really wanting to capture the Christmas spirit. And I have never been to New York City around Christmas time, but I can only imagine the energy and there's so many other great movies that that are able to capture that New York Christmas magic. So I think this felt like more of a Christmas movie to me rather than just a movie that takes place on Christmas. So that was one thing. And I just, I think there's just so much more layers to it. I think, John, you said it perfectly with Tim Curry. You know, it's not just about the wet bandits. It's You've got this whole other element of him trying to... Somebody that's is on to him that knows yeah. that he's up to no good and is kind of chasing around him as well. So it's, I don't know, it's just magic for me. Yeah, and... I, I think he lucks out by getting on the correct plane. I mean, he could have just as easily landed on the airplane to Camden, New Jersey or something like that. So, I mean, <laughs> I, sorry, Camden, New Jersey, you deserve it. Um, but uh, the, uh, you're right. New York is a, it, it's a love letter to New York in many ways. It's shot like a nice travelogue, whereas the other one was the Chris, uh, Chris Columbus, not the explorer, the director of the movie. Um the director said that the cows was a big character for the first one. And this time we have to the ability to expand to a whole city. And New York is a very charming place at Christmas time. And this is a nice travelogue. I mean, you are seeing uh, the Statue of Liberty is, is, is filmed in this, the World Trade Center, the Rockefeller Center Plaza. You have so many of the, you know, they actually did not use FAO Schwartz toy store in this one. As a kid, I just assumed it was like where Tom Hanks, jumps on the piano at the and, and big but nevertheless it, it is a pseudo fao shorts it is the plaza hotel it is it's wonderful i mean you get the theater experience in it you get central park i mean this is a lot of big hits i mean not many movies show off new york i'm mean, tons of movies are made in new york but not many show them off in such a charming way as this one and you're right, Lizzie, like, the, this is a big playground to enjoy. And as somebody who loves New York and has been there several times, I just, I also affectionately love New York City. If if you watch the movie The Out-of-Towners that we did last year, it depicts a different different taste on the experience of New York. And I I um, I like this experience of New York when you, when you see how magical it can be. So um, the pendulum swings the other direction in favor of it, too. <laughs> This movie was huge with everybody at our age group. The, the talk boy became an actual merchandised item. People bought posters and put them up on the wall, like with the, all the booby traps in the house. Uh, they, they had a Sega Genesis game for this, Nintendo NES uh, game for this. They had like the little Tiger Electronic little handheld game. They had a novelization of this. They, they maxed out. It, 
is this a cash grab, John? Like, is it is this what people are responding negatively to? It could be. I mean, I think there are aspects of it being a cash grab, but again, I, I think it's a great movie. Uh, it was highly budgeted, but obviously did very well. I don't know that Macaulay Culkin at the time could have been, you know, called something like that. I, I, this one was like so much harder to film in some ways. So it sounded like Columbus really wanted to do this. Yeah. In the DVD commentary, he's with John Hughes and he's jokingly saying of, you know, I remember you telling me you wrote Home Alone over one weekend. How many hours did it take you to write Home Alone 2? Like, meaning <laughs> they're very similar. Um, but even as they're saying that, it's like, it's still good. John Hughes has that golden touch. He loses it a little bit at the end of his career shortly thereafter. But I mean, this is the end of a very long and amazing run for John Hughes, um, who is somebody who I absolutely love his career and enjoy it. And yes, Dustin uh, and Chad both like to rib me and go like, stop talking about Baby's Day Out, Russell. (laughs) (laughs) We also really have uh, Chevy Chase to think, right? We have Chevy Chase for being so obnoxious and rude, because if not... Isn't that the lore of how the original Home Alone got made? That uh, Chris Columbus was going to film National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and Chevy Chase was so awful that he was like, "I can't work with this guy. You got to put me on something else." And so he was like, "Okay, we'll just do this." And that—that's the birth of Home Alone. I'm pretty sure. So, thank you, Chevy Chase, for being rude <laughs> the one the he's one the, time it pays off he's the one and only guy that you kind of make that exception for is like yep yeah, he's a jerk <laughs> but it is funny <laughs> like, um, it's like it's like if you can be arrogant and untalented and that is the worst thing you can be but if you're arrogant and talented you're at least like well at least he's talented <laughs> like, oh, i'm not gonna lie if this is a this is a rant for a different day I I know that I'm going to get some hate for this, but I don't like Chevy Chase, and I also don't like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, no. I know, I know, but I just, I want a movie that's going to make me feel jolly and in the Christmas spirit, and he is just such a Debbie Downer, and it's just, oh, it makes me so upset. And that poor family that doesn't have any children that just want to enjoy their Christmas alone and enjoy their life choices of not having any children. They just get tormented. And, oh, my gosh, I just could go on and on. I, I just I, I try so hard to like that movie, and I just can't. A couple of lights went out on your Christmas tree just now, Lizzie. We'll have to see if we can. <laughs> Man, we need to. I can't some... do it. That silly uncle that um, with the big dog is, like, the only saving grace of that movie. But aside from that, I can't get into it. Well, I want to ask also, two years go by. They they say in the movie it's one year, so they're saying he's 10, he's 11, because, uh, you know, it's 92 that this drops. And um, so we obviously, you know, children grow up a lot, so Kevin is a lot different this time. And John, having covered this before, does it does it still work? Does, does Macaulay Culkin still have that magic that made him he, uh, by the way he was a super celebrity at the time he was on the cover of magazines he was paid 4.5 million dollars to star in this movie he was in michael jackson's music videos he was with michael jordan and shoe commercials this dude was the most famous like actor under 12 years old 
certainly of the 90s, but I'm going to I'm going to ask the question of has there been a more lucrative child star uh, like under the age of 12? I mean, I know there's Mickey Rooney and I know there's some other people who who have had an impressive careers out of being a child star, but has any of them banked this much? I mean, the Olsen twins together, yes, but you got to divide all of that in half because there's two of them. So, I mean, this is impressive. John, does it does it is it working still though? I think it's still working. Uh, I mean, the magic is still there for me with them. Period. I, I I really watch for that every time I see this film and just his expressions, everything he does, and then like how successful he really was at the time. Like them filming at the airport was more difficult this time because of his celebrity status. Like, and they had to do it in, like February, and just uh, leave up. Christmas decorations. It, it, I, I think that this, you can't say that there's a more lucrative child star like, that I remember, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Lizzie, in the first movie, McCulloch Culkin is very precocious, and he says things in a way that no kid that age can. So they've written it to make him have this mature adult-like intellect, which is hilarious. And in this movie, I think they shift... He has sarcastic lines in the first movie, but I feel like while those oh that's adorable that that kid said that like very adult thing like when you know like when he's buying a toothbrush at the counter and stuff like that like you know he's like talking about and comparing like the performance of the toothbrushes and is this one approved by the American Dental Association like in a very like no kid thinks at this level it's very funny they drop a lot of that because time's gone by and what they've replaced it with is more sarcasm. You know, I think those lines, and it's it's a line in the first movie, but like, lady, do you think that my parents would let me shop here on my own? Like, these are landing in with a, I think he has learned as an actor, the gift of sarcasm. And um, are there any other of those differences that you're seeing as uh, two years of Macaulay Culkin has changed as Kevin McAllister is still here? Yes. Well, I mean, to build off of that, he's got so much more confidence in the second movie. I mean, and to be fair, I would imagine that you have to grow up pretty quickly when you're left completely home alone to your own devices and then have to fight off criminals and only to be saved by your next door neighbor. I mean, it's that's a lot for a young child to go through. So I would imagine that there's some kind of speed speed up of, of his own maturity in a way. And I think that shows a little bit in this movie because he's got some confidence. He's not terrified when he shows up to New York after the shock wears off he's kind of like all right like I'm I'm game for whatever this is gonna whatever this adventure is gonna hold for me and so he just really goes for it so the confidence is one but then the second is I think he also learned a thing or two with his previous experience with his with neighbor because you know when he has the encounter with the pigeon lady they're having that really sweet which by the way her name is pigeon lady if you look up on imdb (laughs) there's no actual name for her when he's having the conversation with pigeon lady they're talking about how he loses trust in people and so i think not only is he given confidence but he's also a lot more wise this time around you know she's saying how she had a lover that stopped loving her back and somewhere along the way she's lost her trust in people and he says, well, that sounds like a stupid thing to do, <laughs> uh, which is a very wise comment, but it's also something that would be completely expected for a kid to say. You know, it's so funny. We all have kids and we all can appreciate how they have a way of 
being so unbelievably blunt and and they give you the truth that sometimes you don't want to hear but you can tell that he's like this Dennis the Menace with a heart of gold so you just can't help but love him so the sarcasm works he's a little grown a little bit more grown up this time and it's fun to watch yeah and John you mentioned on this note that your experience is changing do you want to go into that a little bit like now that you're a parent well you know the first thing I guess to address would be like kind of the worry factor of like if you did get separated from your kid in that capacity, how awful that would be. But watching it with your kid is just totally different. Uh, really, even in the like the first film, I remember one of the first things Rachel really laughed at was uh, that pack my own suitcase. Like I was, that wasn't even something that I would think to laugh at at this point in my life. Uh, so it kind of brings the magic back to moments that I forgot were, were there, like doing that again. So it's really delightful. Like, have you gotten to watch it with your child yet? Uh, Lizzie might have with older, some older ones, but I no, Grant's not there yet. At age three, I don't think we're ready to. We're not ready to fully appreciate it yet. I think he, I think I think there's nothing terrible here, but I just I think there's also a desire to hold it for the right time too. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. My my oldest is six. He'll be seven in January, and he's seen he's seen both, and he loves them both. And he's at that particular stage where we we've been very careful as to entering violence into his repertoire of things to watch. And I remember when I was a kid, my paternal grandma, we all called her Ninny, she would not watch me, let us watch these movies. So, like, for us to watch Home Alone around Christmas time at my grandparents, it was like we were being rebels. I, you know, rewatching these movies now and seeing whether or not they're appropriate for our kids, it's really just, it's fun and it's tongue in cheek. And yes, like you were saying earlier, like, there's, Violence that would most certainly result in death in a real life situation, but it's performed, you know, Joe Pesci and like the performances are just so campy and so much fun that softens the blow, no pun intended, where I just, I think it makes it a little bit easier to swallow. And so my, my son loves the booby trap stuff. Like to him, if he could set up an entire booby trap in his room that he would like everything about Kevin McAllister is what my son wants to be. John Hughes just really knows how to write for multiple levels on this, because I think it's very rich. Both of these movies experience completely differently. Now, I don't think this movie goes into it as much as the first movie. The first movie, there's something really brilliant that I'd never even saw as a kid. You see Catherine O'Hara's frustration with Kevin and how much parents sometimes might want a vacation from their kids. And 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 what was beautiful about the first movie, Kevin was sick of his parents, his parents were sick of Kevin, but being miles apart from each other, unable to be there together, made them both appreciate each other. And this movie, if you don't want that much sentimentality going into it, this movie is more fun, if you will, and less into the emotional. I think Pigeon Lady's not as of a hard hit like i mean old man marley and his you know estranged son who he reconnects with in that one is that is very touching in a way that this this one just this one plays it a little easier and so 
I think there's a tone shift in this one. So they're they're not playing for feels as much here, but that doesn't mean they're not there. The Christmas spirit is still still intact here, and Kevin's mom does still really want to get back to him. She, it, it's like more pushed to the end when she's like, you know, Tim Curry's like, I really don't think you should go out in New York on your own, madam. Yeah. <laughs> like she's like, <laughs> she slaps him across the face with her glove and like. Do make sure you wear a coat. I I will say though that scene does make me angry because she wants to. She's so quick to blame the concierge. Like she's like, my son is lost in New York City because of you. And if I were Tim Curry, I'd be like, well, hold on, let's not let's not get carried away with ourselves, ma'am. I don't think that he's running around New York City because of me. Let's think about how Kevin wound up in New York City. So I, I do, uh, watching it as a parent, I think, you know, we all love to to look at situations like this and be like, oh my gosh, I would just, I would never. But I, you know, I would hope that I would never let my child get on the wrong plane or do any of those things with any one of my kids. But I can appreciate what it feels like to really just drop the ball as a parent you know things just happen and it's it's life and so this is obviously done in a very hyperbolic way but i think what i is missing from Catherine o'hara is some kind of guilt like she has absolutely zero guilt in this movie they they are like we did it again (laughs) and then she just falls over and then after that she's just mad at everybody and i'm like where where is the self-awareness that you have done this? Like, this is your fault. And uh, that that's probably something I would have changed about her performance. But otherwise, it was great. The, the, the policeman in Florida was even kind of looking at him like, you guys are terrible parents. Yes. Like, it's not <laughs> funny that this happened. Well, Catherine O'Hara agreed. She even said that uh, she was uh, concerned that there wasn't, like, more of her being concerned. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I think... I think there's something interesting in this, though. In the first movie, you've left your child behind on accident. And there's some safety about the home. There's familiarity. And while the neighbors weren't around, there, in theory, would be people you would trust in the region. There might be grandparents in the area. There would be teachers. There would be other, you know, there's there's an expanded network in your hometown. Here, he's in New York City, which is a big, scary place. And I think one of the things that... I'm putting my head into the people who get real stuffy like Ebert who are like, this isn't funny, this is violence, and kids can't watch all this violence. Um, I think those stuffy people are also looking at this. Kevin runs away in New York. He didn't go to the counter and just say, hey, I got on the wrong flight. And that's probably what most kids would do. I know that's what I would have done. But, you know, what what this movie is, is it's, it's a child turning New York City into his playground. And they're unable to, like you said, John said, I watched my daughter watch this movie and with different eyes. I watched this movie at that age, but they, they didn't have the benefit of seeing it as a kid. They saw it as an adult only, with children probably, and you're sitting there going like, you've forgotten the magic of, I mean, kids have no freedom. They constantly do what their parents tell them to do. They have to. And this is a notion of what would a kid do with, with free reign. There's another movie that comes out in the same era called Blank Check, <laughs> where the kid in it gets a big check for tons of money and can do whatever he wants to do. And it's fun for kids. And clearly the adults didn't like that movie either. But it's still the premise that you you need to forget 
that the kids have no liberty and seeing them have agency to eat ice cream for dinner or to go into a giant pool full of like people being all stuffy. It's like, I'm going to practice my cannonballs. There's simple little things like that bring big smiles to your kids' faces. And now they bring smiles to my faces because I remember what it did. And I have a feeling if as my kid gets older and probably enjoys it as well, I'm only going to like it more. So I think the 90s is kind of the last gasp of like, kids can handle this sort of thing because, you know, Batman Returns had come out and everyone said it was too scary, too scary for kids. We covered this back a long time ago as well. And um, they redirected Batman as, as a result of that. And this is one of those things of it's too violent. And if you look at TV violence, it's gone from Looney Tunes to being very safe. You know, I mean, you know, it's like Paw Patrol. There are no bad guys. There's no fighting. There's no violence. I mean, it's, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wouldn't fly today because they're fighting or Thundercats or whatever. Uh, He-Man, She-Ra, like, you know, you can go through the list. There's a distinct difference in what we find to be acceptable as children at this age. And I think that's kind of sad because, like you said, I think they can handle Looney Tunes. I think it's an opportunity for a parent to explain that it's not real. Uh, there have been sad storylines. I know Mr. Rogers was very troubled by a child jumping off a roof, thinking he could fly like Superman. And I don't remember if he got hurt or died, but it was really sad. And Mr. Rogers wanted to address everybody and just let him know there's a difference in make-believe and pretend. But that is your job as a parent. You are supposed to tell people, this can be funny. It is pretend. If you get hit in the head with a brick, that you'll hurt somebody. And they're just being silly. And that's okay. And at some point, I feel like we lost that. So there's my old man yelling at clouds. Power. Um, <laughs> I agree with you. Well, one reason why we could never, this movie could never work in 2022 is that if you, if your child doesn't already have a cell phone, then we would have one of those little iPhone discs that's a little tracking device that you just stick in their backpack and take them everywhere we go. You know, my son has a gizmo watch that he can make outgoing calls to that is also a tracker we that we send to school in and you know it's just we i I, we're so oversaturated with the ability to track and keep tabs on our kids but then i totally agree with you also russell that there's this oversensitivity of wanting to shield them from so much and while i can appreciate the sentiment they're really missing out on opportunities to just let them be kids yeah yeah i mean kellen's Kevin is mouthy. I know some parents got frustrated at like, look at him talking back to his parents and stuff like that. But I mean, he regrets it. I mean, follow the character arc. I mean, he wants his family back. So it's odd that he has to learn the same lesson <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. the very next year. But hey, if, if you're a parent, you'll notice you sometimes have to remind your kid more than once to learn some lessons. So you would think that being left from home would be traumatic enough to remember for the rest of your life. But... <laughs> It's interesting, um, Macaulay Culkin's father negotiated with the studio that he would have to be in The Good Son, which is a very different kind of performance where, you know, he's, a, he's kind of a bad guy. He's a, he's a problem child and kind of sinister child And in order to not typecast him coming out of this. Um, I don't know that it worked. I still think, you still think Macaulay Culkin, you still think of Home Alone type things, Richie Rich and things like that. But... This paves the way for him to go do My Girl and things like that that start to break the mold for him a little bit. Uh, so 
it's interesting. Uh, Brenda Fricker is the pigeon lady. She goes on to be an Oscar winner. And interesting, John, we have Joe Pesci. He's an Oscar winner himself, coming off of an Oscar here, coming into this movie. And Macaulay Culkin asked him, why don't you ever smile? And he told him, shut up. And uh, Joe Pesci just kept this stern, sour Joe Pesci act going the whole time. And uh, Joe Pesci said, he's pampered by a lot of people, not by me. I think he likes that. (laughs) So um, it's so funny to see Joe Pesci involved with this production. I remember seeing the interviews before of them telling him, like, hey, don't use the F-bomb. Joe, like, you know, like, you can't say that, like, and so he goes around muttering gibberish as he gets hurt. <laughs> he's such a funny person to see associated with this, like, Daniel Stern seems like a kid who's just enjoying himself in these interviews, and Chris Columbus is somebody who really enjoys working with kids. You know, he did the first Harry Potter movie, he did Dennis the Menace, he did Gremlins, he did... Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire has good work with children, like, you know, ch- child actors in there. Yeah. Um, Adventures and babysitting. Yeah. So I don't, um, I, it's funny to see Joe Pesci in this world, but it works so well. So well. John, what is it you love about Marvin Harry? Everything, really. I mean, for me, that that's the meat of the movie, um, the whole movie. Uh, it's not just, uh, like, that the, these the doofus criminals it's really their chemistry like daniel stern and, and joe pesci it, it's almost like peanut butter and jelly in a way for me they work so well together in different ways and just seeing joe pesci he's so good in comedy i mean my cousin Vinny, like everything oh we must cover yeah. that someday but anyway no it's right john i mean i love how much marv loves petty theft there are like six, seven, eight times that he just like steals pennies from like somebody who's like got like like taking collection money or like, you know, he takes uh, earmuffs or a beanie or like a, uh, a scarf or one cowboy hat. I mean, he just takes things because he just en- he's he's hey, he listened at career day and they said, do what you love. He loves stealing stuff. It doesn't even matter what it is. He just loves it. And it's so hilarious to see it light up, whereas it's juxtaposed by Joe Pesci, who's very business like is like, stop doing that. So and he gets a big joy of like, we're the sticky bandits now. It's almost like he wants the marketing part of it, though. Yeah. Like he wants to come up with something. Let's flood everyone's house like. But he, there's there's a childlike nature to Marv too, of like uh, you know, like it's like smell that, yeah, fish, fish, no money, oh yeah, money, but also fish, and fish. Yeah. <laughs> Lizzie, do you feel like Marv and Harry? Obviously, it's great that they're back, but do you feel like their roles have changed at all? I I actually don't think that their roles have changed at all, and that's exactly what I like about it. I think that if it works don't fix it. You know, I think they, it just feels so perfect to me that the wet bandits were so like you, I mean, you guys really hit the nail on that. They're just this perfect juxtaposition of kind of the ruthless leader that really has to on the prize. And then his sidekick that's a little bit more dopey, slightly more lovable. And it just, it, it works. I'm glad that they added in, the concierge and, and that whole storyline because that gives you a little bit more meat to the story but John I'm with you I think you go for the laughs that you get from the web bandits 100% so 
Last time we uh, had John Candy in this movie, and he was going to do a cameo and pop into this one again. And last time, Kevin McAllister puts the aftershave on and screams into the mirror, and um, they they actually filmed a scene and then cut it, saying like, "No, this is where we've gone too far." <laughs> you know, <laughs> Kevin won't remember the lesson of "Don't run away from your parents," but uh, but this one he should know. Um, so. There's some interesting moments like that, but there are some fun cameos to be had here. Chris Columbus is in the toy store holding uh, his daughter at one point. And let's talk about somebody we can all agree on across, no matter who you are, Donald Trump. Lizzie, there's a former president here in this movie, Mr. Donald Trump in the Plaza Hotel. This is this this cameo gets more and more surreal with time. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> when we watched it for for this podcast and you know for for a six-year-old watching the movie and he obviously has no idea donald trump is or was or anything about him so for him that's the total throwaway scene but i watched that and kind of very surreally said son that was the former president of the united states and i couldn't really laugh about it just like someday when you're ready <laughs> <laughs> It does. I mean, but talk about things that are not appropriate for a six-year-old ear. Do, do do people feel well? Okay, nobody feels the same way about Ronald Reagan as they feel about Donald Trump in terms of the personalities. But I, I am wondering: do do some people have this like moment, like with old Ronald Reagan movies? Like to me, he's the president. But like, do people from a, a former generation who knew him as an actor like have this like, wow? Anybody, and I really mean anybody, can be president now. So, um, so I've wondered that uh, his one line is "Stand the hole on the left." Um, yeah. So, he, Chris Columbus claimed that he was bullied by Donald Trump to be in the movie, which does sound about right. So, the he is the owner of the Plaza Hotel at the time, and uh, Columbus wasn't really happy about forcing him in there. But test audiences cheered and really liked it when Trump as a personality appeared in it. So he ended up liking it in the end, but he's like, it's my hotel. I got to be in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things I could say, but that I won't since this is a G rated podcast in terms of Trump, Trump vernacular that he would use. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's wild to think of just the history of, who he was then and who he is now. And it's, it's kind of just, if anything, it's a silly little wink to millennials and up and everybody that kind of understands his, his history. They even go into like, uh, Herbert Hoover stayed here on this floor once. The vacuum cleaner guy? No, the, the president. <laughs> and so it's funny that the, he just walked past an actual president on his way there. Again, this gets more and more surreal. And of course, there's movies within movies Tim Curry is ended up getting scared of a clown inflatable in in the shower scene. So Kevin records his uncle Frank, you know, you know, screaming at him like, "Get out of here, you pervert! Or I'm going to kill you! Or uh, or I'm going to whack you with the head! Slap you silly! I'm going to slap you silly! Yes, of course, um, something less threatening." And, um, and Tim Curry's face is <gasps> and very startled and leaves. And I think it's so funny that it Pennywise the clown ends up being afraid of a inflatable clown balloon. So love it. He's like one of my favorite Tim Curry roles. That he that movie came the made for T V version. That was nineteen ninety, so he would have already filmed that, right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I say too. So yeah, he would have. That's funny. I had made that um, connection. That's awesome. 
and they're done clue at that point. And I love Jim Carrey's Grinch. Like it's very good. But there's a scene where they actually take a clip of the cartoon Grinch and they overlap it with Tim Curry's face as he's finding out that the credit card is stolen with great glee that uh, that Kevin is a fraud and he he kind of knew it all along and that evil smile is faded out to from the Grinch and I'm sitting there going like. Well, I would never want to take Jim Carrey out of it, but part of me kind of wishes. What if Tim Curry were the Grinch? <laughs> I think it would have been far, far better. I love Jim Carrey, but I Tim Curry to me is like a, he's untouchable. I love him. Oh, he's a favorite of the podcast if you've been listening. So, um, yeah, Tim Curry is always much appreciated. So, uh, we're we're big fans of the Curry, uh, big Curry fans here. So, um, so. John, how do you think Chris Columbus does here? I mean, we've talked about his desire to, you know, he has this warmth to a lot of his movies, and he does deal with um, multiple levels and directing children very well. What are some other things about Chris Columbus that you would like to bring through here with the Home Alone franchise? Really just uh, having to pull this all together again, but also in New York and with these contractual obligations. I actually had written down the same thing about uh, him talking about Trump bullying him into this uh, but he was also just talking about budgetary things. Is apparently uh, it was just a very cold winter, but they'd spent a ton of money on artificial snow, and you know just really kind of doing that all on the fly. Like as you said, he knew the storyline, how to kind of pull that all together. But he can take John Hughes' writing and just really put it on screen so beautifully. Like you know, R- Russell, you mentioned before all the movies he's done, just that childlike. Imagination and just wonder. I think it's interesting um, his relationship to the people. He seems like a very affable person. You know, Macaulay Culkin likes him and he speaks very highly. He says Macaulay's a very charming, very mature. Like he takes his acting, like you know, you know, seriously. And it's it's interesting to hear him talking about like working with Daniel Radcliffe and stuff like that. You're just like, wow, this is. Sometimes we work with, you know, we talk over some directors just like this guy's really talented, but he's he's a jerk. Like you know Kubrick or William Freakin or something like that, but then you get like Chris Columbus is like at the other side. It's just like ah, that dude seems really cool. So it kind of makes you happy and like the movie even more, knowing that also he really enjoyed himself doing it. Daniel Stern said one of the first takes that he did when he was getting electrocuted, which is hilarious. What Daniel Stern's doing? It's I mean you forget that he's not actually being electrocuted. (laughs) Um, uh, he uh, he made Chris Columbus laugh so hysterically he couldn't he couldn't <laughs> yell out the word cut. So Daniel did what a good actor would do, and he kept going, and he ended up falling out on the floor short on breath. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris is having such a good time doing this, and John Hughes um, speaks very warmly of working with Chris. So all of these stories that you see somehow add another layer of affection to this movie for me. I don't know. Lizzie, do you have any other thoughts on how this movie is made and presented by Chris Columbus? Oh, I totally agree with your last sentiment. I think that hearing all the lore of how every, how much everybody loves working with each other and having just a warm family dynamic on the set and everyone just really enjoying what they do. I think that, that makes it enjoyable. But also when you're watching it, you can really feel that. Like I think without reading any of the background of this movie, I would have been able to gather that everybody was having so much fun because you can really feel that leap off the screen that everyone like Daniel Stern, like that scream I is 
epic. Like his, it's just so unbelievable. Like his little shriek <laughs> that he does. And like, you can just tell that he and Joe Pesci are having a blast. And I mean, even with Tim Curry and, and Rob Schneider, you can, I mean, everybody is just really enjoying their job. And I love that. I love how Chris Columbus, I mean, looking at his, filmography of what he's directed there's definitely a common denominator with most of his movies and they all have some kind of family element to them whether it's not red yeah i guess not red well kind of i guess if you're talking about chosen family oh that's true okay no that's hey there you're right yeah and john hughes is another one of these people i've we've when we we did the breakfast club just a few weeks ago and that was a you know as i mentioned john hughes is also just one of these you know great dudes who's uh he's such a great writer it is funny what happens this career after home alone 2 because it goes dennis the menace baby's day out miracle on 34th street remake 101 dalmatians flubber he does home alone 3 and it's so weird like this is the same guy who brought you mr mom national lampoon's vacation weird science pretty in pink ferris bueller's day off planes trains automobile she's having a baby uncle buck and it's just like a Home Alone, Christmas Vacation. All of these are John Hughes. Dutch is an underappreciated uh, one. And then it turns, like, Home Alone 2 is like this weird turning point for him where he goes all the way full tilt, family fun, and never gets the acclaim that he had writing to younger people in their 20s and teens and stuff like that in the 80s. I'm assuming, as somebody who just evolved and got older, took joy in making children happy, um, none of these efforts that he makes for kids, I think, come put a candle to like Home Alone and Home Alone 2, though, after this. And my apologies if you really love Beethoven or something like that. <laughs> I love, I mean, John Hughes was able to encapsulate the awkward phase of growing up so perfectly mm-hmm. in all of his earlier work. I mean, you name the movie and it's just when you watched it, you were able to relate so well to it. And then as an adult, there's that kind of fun, nostalgic element because he does the exact same. He does in all of his movies where the adults have some kind of interesting arc as well. So that when you're older, you now get to play this new, have this new experience of watching it through the eyes of the parents in the movie. And I mean, as we said, watching it with our kids and I, I just, I love his work. It's, he's truly a legend. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was funny. Chris and John really wanted everybody back, so the notion of bringing back the same robbers and everything like that, um, I really feel like we've. I've apologized for this once, but like, there's retreads without integrity, and there's retreads with integrity, and I think that they knew that there there was a chemistry, and this is just one of those retreads that maybe I just got me at the right age, but I'm I'm forgiving of it, and so I know that they hit many of the same beats over and over again but i think that they enjoyed doing it like you said lizzie it shows through and it doesn't feel like a cheap hollow like yep we got your money there were some changes in the family it's funny do do you remember lizzie were you on the episode with leslie vernon the or sorry uh behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon yes yes that was with me angela gothels is the main character and in that movie and so from that mockumentary, she is Kevin's older sister, the one who would uh, give the pretentious, you are what the French calls les incompetents. No way! Yes. Oh my gosh, what a cool callback. Yeah, and I knew when I was watching Behind the Mask, uh, Rise of Leslie Vernon, which by the way, half of you guys are probably like, I've never heard of this movie, is very funny. 
and you should check yeah. it out if you're a horror fan at all. Like it's a very fun thing to check out. But Angela Gothels does not return here. She gets replaced. She's like one of the only people who doesn't get to come back. There's no explanation on it. And then also Kevin's oldest sister, Heather, I guess, uh, or cousin Heather, she's just gone. Maybe she's in college. No explanation. It's like the family matters. Like the, the, the like one of the siblings in family matters just disappeared with no explanation one day. So, so obviously no, none of us noticed. I'm still like, hey, that's the kid from Pete and Pete, right? So, I mean... Um, the, most of the family, Fuller is, uh, Macaulay Culkin's brother, Kieran Culkin as well. So it's just, it is fun to see all of these little pieces and Gary Bamman, who I've started to connect dots of who he is as uncle Frank. I, I like this family and I actually think it's sad we didn't get a cash grab third movie. And this is where I'm going to ask, would you have won, Macaulay Culkin retires from acting, funny thing to say as a young person, but John Hughes wanted to do a third one with Macaulay Culkin. They're very conflicting stories about what he would have done with the character. Would you have wanted a third one with Macaulay Culkin, Lizzie? Oh, for sure. I don't know exactly how you would do it because I think your two options are you're either home or you're not. So I think now that they'd have to kind of put something else into the element where if they were going to be back at home, then... How, how are they going to configure that? Maybe possibly a good idea for a third would be he's older now. He's old enough that he can be left home alone by choice. And the Wet Bandits are finally coming to exact revenge. That would be a good movie. I would watch that. Yeah. So you're waiting more than just two years and having him be 13. Then you're, you're going for like a 15-year-old or 16-year-old like Kevin or something like that. I think something like that. I think legally, I, the age is different for every for every state on when you can leave your kids home alone. But I think I would say I would bang. It's, I think it would be funnier if he was a teenager. For sure. Interesting, John. How about you? Would you want a Home Alone three? And if so, what would it, what would your have head canon be if 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 Kevin, Kevin McAllister got back in the saddle one more time? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Honestly, if it came out in 1994 and I was nine years old, I'd say, I don't care what the storyline is. Just give me more of it. Like, I just <laughs> I just want the booby traps and all that fun stuff. Like, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, a sim- I'm a simple guy. I was like, this time, instead of bricks, we're going to be throwing cinder blocks. I'm like, that's brilliant. <laughs> Anvils. <laughs> yeah, Anvils. Where does he come up with this stuff? Fantastic. So you're on board no matter where it is then. Um, yeah, at that age, absolutely. I actually thought, wouldn't it be funny if there's a road trip version when Kevin gets like into like uh, spring break and like his senior year of high school and the Wet Bandits get out of jail and it's been enough time to serve their sentence and to come after him. And so you're taking it across the country instead of just New York City. And yes, if Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci are on board with doing this. I I think you're right, John and Lizzie. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter what's happening. These these three are pure gold. In fact, Tim Curry being on a beach somewhere on vacation would be a nice cameo. So um, yeah, it's it's a shame it didn't happen. I wish he hadn't retired. We do get a Home Alone three, and I went into that one thinking this is gonna suck. And I'm like, eh, it's it's fine. I I could not tell you the differences between three and four. I just remember that. The air kind of got out of my tires. Now, to be fair, Three. I was much older. So yeah, when you're, I didn't even see it then. Yeah, it just 
when you're a teenager, it's the last. It, I think the magic kind of got taken out of three and four, so that when you are a teenager, it you, it really does just kind of feel like this flat story where they're just going for the gimmicks, but there's this love and magic there. Absolutely. I never lost That's it. I was... I've watched it so many times. Like it, Home Alone was one of those like every years for me. So Home Alone two may be like every other year or something like that. So I never lost track of it personally. Did you, John? Um, no, I I never lost track of it. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I probably watched the first one more, but uh, I loved the second one just as much. I love how the pigeon attack sequence was real. Like they <sighs> they actually threw birdseed all over Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci, and they didn't have stuntmen do it for them, and that's hilarious. So, and there was a clip of Chris Columbus laughing. Uh, just after shooting that scene of like Joe Pesci uh, carries his Oscar trophy around in his trench coat throughout the filming of this whole movie. And I'm like, he's a funny dude. So I'm like, is he being serious? Because he might like, <laughs> does he just carry it everywhere? <laughs> um, like maybe just to be like, just in case you guys are laughing at me a little too hard, let me remind you that I have this Oscar. Yeah. out to pop to feel superior in comparison. Does he go to the concessions table and start to like polish it? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my coat is so heavy. Perhaps it's because I have this Oscar <laughs> in it. <laughs> and ninety two uh, mobile phones in the cars were like kind of like still a hot thing so like be in the car and like pick up your oscar hold your phone hello hello oh sorry that's my oscar (laughs) (laughs) and then it's like i meant to get my mobile telephone then like show off twice (laughs) (laughs) so john we mentioned some of this before like what of the new york romp do you love the most i mean I, i think i gushed about new york city and loving it and christmas time makes it even more you know romantic and you know the, the image they paint of new york's great but um talk about the new yorkness of this for me actually this was probably one of the earlier movies where i got like a quick snapshot like of a lot of the major landmarks and looking back at it now i, I just wanted to mention how, how do you get on the uh trade towers by yourself as a kid that was the one thing that i was just kind of curious about security was uh, different <laughs> yeah just like one kid running around the observation deck that's interesting but it's just kind of like the hustle and bustle of it all like and kind of the uh lavish lifestyle in some places and the idea of central park just that it's this different time like during the holidays like i mean this different place that i guess it's just totally unique i've never been there during christmas but you know russell i was with you the only time i was in new york and it was overwhelming enough then but (laughs) (laughs) it's uh just also how Kevin, I guess, kind of takes it on and like, that's the New York mentality, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Tim Curry said, uh, himself of like, New York's a magical city and to have a credit card with funds on it, to be able to have, have any kind of weekend you want, even as an adult, it's, it's still an exquisitely amazing thing. Like that has an allure to it, but even as a kid, like that seems extra amazing. So like, like Tim totally got like what joy that brought to the notion there. So Lizzie, what New York things made you the happiest here? Like why is New York, you mentioned again, this is better for you. Why is it better in New York? 
I just, well, I think John hit the nail on the head. I think there's just such a great energy about New York City. And it's, you know, in some ways, it's when you think of America, you think of New York City. And that's just kind of the, the staple of the U.S. At least that's always kind of the association that I make. And so, you know, especially around Christmas time, you've got the Rockefeller tree and all of the ice skating outside. And those were things that were so foreign to me. Like I wasn't introduced to the idea of ice skating outside of a hockey rink until I was like outside, probably like in college. And so the idea of like everybody skating around the tree and the just overall energy and vibe that, that everybody has, because yes, it's, it's busy and it's crazy. And like John said, it's sink or swim, but then at the same time, Times also all these wonderful elements like Christmas at the Plaza, and it's just so luxurious, and it's like a big fantasy. I'm going to slightly pop our bubbles, and I apologize for this, but uh, John Hughes is a Chicago guy, and a lot of his movies are very Chicago y, so I'm about to Chicago your New York um, a little bit, and if that's okay. So obviously, you have <laughs> O'Hare. Obviously, Chicago is is the airport that they're running through in the beginning of this, and you're like, yeah, that's Chicago. Of course it is. It's got to start in Evanston, like where the where the house actually is. But uh, that amazing swimming pool that Kevin goes into, well, apparently the Plaza Hotel does not actually have a swimming pool like that in there. That's the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. So, oh man, I know. I was yeah. planning on a family trip and working on my cannonballs. Well, go to Chicago at the Four Seasons Hotel. <laughs> um, and if you want to attend a concert, a Christmas concert at Carnegie Music Hall, you might be better off to go to the Orchestra Hall in downtown Chicago <laughs> as well. Um, so um, and it gets better. The um, Duncan's Toy Chest, the store featuring them, it is definitely based on FAO Schwartz, which is in Manhattan, New York. And is an amazing experience. As a kid, I went to FAO Schwartz. It was just, it was, it's like multiple floors, like six floors of toys. It was just, it, it's just an experience every child should have. It's, it's amazing. But that's not where they actually go, surprisingly. I don't know why they couldn't get the filming there. They shot the outside of the building in Chicago at a very nice building called the Rookery. <laughs> and... um Frank Lloyd Wright actually renovated the interior of it early, early in his career. It's not Wrightian in the way that you would think, but these are really Chicago-y things. And the New York, um, the Row House, that's not, like the house being renovated It's not actually in New York either. That's actually done on a sound set stage um, in a back lot of, um, in Hollywood. So they needed more control to be able to shoot the house from the angles that they needed to, and obviously to break holes and to set up this fake renovated house. So perhaps this one's more forgivable, but that's also not New York. Everything else, New York. And I'm... That's so funny. Yeah. I do love Chicago too, though. Yeah. So I didn't mean to ruin our New York experience, but I had I set you up to then to, to, knock, it, to knock us down and destroy our childhoods a little bit. So I got to ask, though, what... What stunts, or I should say, what booby traps, we, we, we have to say, what booby traps did you both get the kick out of, Lizzie? I mean, I think it, it feels a little bit like low-hanging fruit, but I just honestly think the electrocution, because just when you think it's going to be just kind of a run-in-the-mill electrocution scene, the fact that he literally turns into a skeleton, it just, I mean, it's 
It's so campy in an amazing way. I love it. I remember my dad laughing hysterically at the fourth brick or like the third brick because, you know, there's the comedy rule of three. Like, and, you know, he hits him with a brick and like Harry's like, what? What are you throwing bricks at us? And then he hits him again. It's Marv. And then then he dodges the third one saying, you're not going to hit me with a brick. And like Marv gets hit with another one. We're out. Uh, He's out of bricks. (laughs) He throws him with a fourth one because, you know, even as a movie watcher, you're sitting there going like three. That's that's very funny. And then you're like, nope. Four is very funny. Whoever said you have to stop at three is wrong. Four is still very funny. So, um, John, how about you? What's what are what are some of the booby traps that made you happiest? Well, the electrocution scenes at the top, like that one to this day, I, I will physically laugh out loud. Just that scream, like, and whoever edited it, like, it's so well done, like when he changes to a skeleton and when the scream really kicks into gear, it's, uh, but, uh, I also like it when he puts his head in the toilet and like, like good job on that core strength, but just <laughs> <laughs> the kerosene, the kerosene in the toilet, just the, yeah. whole, the whole house, like a cartoon just goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's black on the face, like Wile E. Coyote Ebert. You're so wrong. This is hilarious, man. Real life cartoons are hilarious. Give me more of this. Um, He's so funny. He really is like a real life Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris Columbus loves the James Bond gadgetry and loves James Bond. And, you know, a lot of the things that he wrote in Gremlins, Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes. And these are things that Chris Columbus had said that his love of James Bond movies and gadgetry comes into play. And Home Alone is another one of these prime examples of that. So um, his just joy and enthusiasm for this shows through and i'm glad he didn't hold back uh any of the violence there so um for me i like the pipe drop like so i like how marv and harry think they're outsmarting kevin in such a three stooges sort of way of like you know they're like oh i got hit with a paint can and like kevin's not fooled by any of this and then they think there's like after both paint cans go uh it's in one of those little nods of like hey we've done this before this is a sequel but then they get hit both simultaneously with a big, gigantic steel pipe. Um, I remember actually, I'd been laughing pretty hard up to that point. Like that was like one of those reigniting laughs. Like after you've been like on a roller coaster of laughs, up and down, up and down of, of hard laughs, this is one of the ones that really got me. And then I love the rope. It, you can see it coming from a mile away because you see Kevin doing it in the setup of it. But um, it still sold so well with like the wet the sticky bandits coming down the rope <laughs> and, and kevin lighting it on fire like why does it smells like kerosene <laughs> and then he's like go up go up <laughs> oh man these are these all make me very happy and then obviously the pigeons at the end are a is a great finish music the first movie brings out a lot of these classics this one retreads some of them I don't know that the music's as great in this one. However, I did like the Carnegie Hall, the pseudo Carnegie Hall, Chicago Carnegie Hall, if you will. That was a good moment for that. I don't know that it's as touching as Old Man Marley and Kevin were in a church together and the choir was singing with all the stained glass. Like that was very perfect. This is a little bit of a step down from that, but it's still very good. Lizzie, are there musical moments of this that you just loved? 
yeah, I mean, it, I, I think honestly, they kind of just care. It felt to me more like they carried everything over. There wasn't anything musically that really stood out, but that was what I liked about it was that I was able to hear all the same music and just kind of be put in that exact same headspace. Yeah. Um, John, what is your favorite music moment from this? Ooh, actually probably what you were saying in the theater uh, there. I, I agree. It's not as touching as, you know, it was with old man Marley in the first film, but um, I thought the musical sequence there was nice. I held back on mine. I love when uncle Frank is discovered in the shower <laughs> and, and Kevin McCallish pulls out the talk boy and he's Gary Bamman is singing the song, the Capitals cool jerk, which is an absurd song to begin with. And it's sung poorly by uncle Frank in the shower while being recorded. That's, that's about as good as it gets. So um, that's quite a musical highlight for me in this one. So um, do you guys want to do hand out some superlatives? Let's do it. All right. John, do us the honor. Who's your MVP? Um, well, this one, I guess I want to call it co-MVPs, but it's the, the wet bandits. Sticky um, bandits now. Oh, yeah. The sticky bandits now. Excuse me. Formerly wet bandits. S-T-I. Uh, I. Yes. <laughs> Uh, without them like their comedic genius and like really playing those lovable but goofy villains right film that doesn't really work they are fantastic lizzie mvp so i did a little bit of the same vibe as you as far as co mvps i went with john hughes and chris columbus together i just i think that they are a dynamic duo works so well. John Hughes just has this unbelievable vision. And like we said, he can tap into the child experience and really tug at your heartstrings in the most perfect way. And then I think Chris Columbus just seems to be this lovable teddy bear kind of guy that can really just bring that vision to life. They just, I think, I think without them, it quite possibly wouldn't be the classic that we love so much. Yeah. And I, I'm giving it to Tim Curry. I don't just automatically do this every time Tim Curry's in a movie, even though it seems like I do. But, I mean, the whole middle 50% of this movie wouldn't work. Uh, especially, the he's the element that's truly new that makes me just really relish all of this. He is so good. And yes, I think you're probably right. Like, I mean, Marvin and Harry are technically the most important pieces, but we got that already. This is... What makes this? What makes me still come back and watch this? In addition to just getting more Marvin and uh, Harry, is getting Mr. Hector at the at the concierge. And honestly, Rob Schneider is also very funny, asking for tips and getting gum put into his hand and you know getting bossed around. And you know, it's like watching them talk together. I wanted more scenes with them. He's like, Cedric, don't count your tips in, <laughs> like in front of the guests. I mean, like. Everything he does is so funny, and I love the scene where he goes in. It's a total rehash of playing the old movie clips of filthy angels, even filthier, <laughs> filthier angels, and like watching this clip of you know, you know, really digging into this even more absurd thing before it might be quasi believable that that's what the pizza guy would get scared of and run away from, or that you know, Marv's like, I think I know that name, snakes. But um, in this movie. It's just like, you've been smooching everybody. Little Mo, Harry, yeah. <laughs> and Cliff. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great choice. Tim Curry is epic. Yeah. 
Um, best supporting actor, John. Well, actually, the only other person I considered for MVP was Tim Curry, but I went with him here. I was afraid to, didn't know if he was in a big enough part of the movie, but uh, he is just wonderful in this film. And that's probably the reason maybe I was even more excited about it sometimes uh, when I was younger uh, than the, the first one. But watching it again this time, when he's crawling on the floor after he thinks he's getting shot, like his he's doing it so well, like in very short arm steps, but just very controlling, but screaming at the same time. He's just wonderful. Like, you down on your knees and tell me you love me. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I, I just like the way he says words throughout this movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of those people like Christopher Walken, where it's just like, you just hand him a sheet of paper with just some regular words on it, and he turns it into gold. <laughs> so, Lizzie, best supporting. I did the same. He is one of those actors where if he is in the movie, even if the source material is awful, I'm still going to enjoy it just because I love watching Tim Curry do his thing. I mean, whether he's Pennywise or he's in Clue or... Home Alone or anything else, Rocky Horror, I mean, you name it. Like, I just absolutely adore him and his work. And it's just a treat to watch on the screen. You can't take your eyes off. I think this is my fourth time handing him an MVP on this show. So I, I'm totally with you. <laughs> uh, best supporting actor for me, though, I went kind of the inverse of John. I, I specifically singled out Daniel Stern here because he's such a good goofball. Like, the electrocution scene that Lizzie mentioned is just... <laughs> It's brilliant. I mean, and like you said, John, they, they cut it so well. Like at first he's just doing a great job of getting electrocuted. They cut, they do his hair up. Like, like it's like getting like, like it's like an Afro of like his, all of his curls are straightened out. And then like, then he turns in that skeleton, but even it's level. <laughs> and when he's done, he looks up at the skylight and he goes, Harry. <laughs> oh man. He's just so funny. I don't know how he doesn't have an... I mean, he has a pretty awesome career. I mean, um, but I don't know how he doesn't have an even more awesome career. This guy is hilarious. So He needs an Oscar to carry around in his coat. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve one, Daniel Stern. Um, not from Bushwhacked, though. It goes downhill from him, too, from, from here as well. So, Although City Slickers, it's good stuff on that, too. Um, Hidden Gem, John... If, there's a lot of fun. I may have spoiled so many of them already, but uh, who's your hidden gem? Um, I'm going with Ali Sheedy. Uh, seems a little like odd, but just her as the uh, desk clerk at the airport that lets Kevin know what city he's in. Oh yeah. Just... Well, that's that's so perfect because this is John Hughes, and exactly. this is one of his Brad Pack, you know, people. This is this is her from Breakfast Club, so. Us movie nuts like these little crossovers like that. So, yes, she's a fun poppin'. This was mine too. But uh, Lizzie, who is yours? I put Kieran Cullen because I am a huge Succession fan, and it is so funny to watch him in this role. <laughs> I actually saw a couple of fan theories because there's never any kind of mention as to what Kevin's dad actually does, and um, and then of course. Kieran's character is he's supposed to be his cousin 
So I've seen a couple of really interesting fan theories that perhaps the super rich uncle is actually is actually the dad from Succession and like the whole family, <laughs> which I absolutely love that fan theory. But just seeing him as such a tiny little guy and then being able to turn around and see him in Succession as this as Roman is is unbelievable. It's he's arguably my all time favorite character in that series. So I love seeing him as a little kid in this. Yeah, and you know I think it's uh, Coke also took took over this movie. So if you're a Coke fan, Home Alone 2 is your movie. If you're a Pepsi fan, the uh, Kieran holds up a Pepsi can real big with the logo out front, and, and this time it's Coke. So they, they switch over. Lizzie, if you had to recast somebody and put something else in their place, this is a tough one because um, we both just gushed about it. Recast. I would recast Donald Trump for the cameo. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a lot about this because who I wanted to replace immediately, Donald Trump came. Please say George W. Bush. I want him to be out. No, I thought about it so much. I wanted to have something that was really popular in 1992. Now, I know it's not a John Hughes film, but I know that this was in the zeitgeist of popularity in 1992. I thought it would have been unbelievable to have Vivian and Edward, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. So their characters from Pretty Woman all dressed up together as Vivian and Edward passing Kevin McAllister and him asking them how to get to the lobby. Because, you know, they're in the Beverly Hills Hotel, but Edward has a loft in New York City. He mentions it in Pretty Woman, and that would have been such a fun wink to oh. have that crossover lizzie you've expanded the gary marshall cinematic universe that we had in valentine's <laughs> day and you've you've expanded it to go into the john hughes universe i mean dustin and chad are our official gary marshall guys so um they're gonna need to get on that 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 sounds you're, you're now talking right up their alley on that one um john recast uh this was obviously a tough one uh, it was so well casted uh but the one i kind of went with is really because i wanted to see you replacing uh I guess I'm going into an Adam Sandler universe. I'd like to see Steve Buscemi in Rob Schneider's role. Steve Buscemi doing it. He'd be good. I, I like Rob I, I like Rob Schneider in this one so well, I just want to add Steve Buscemi to the staff of this already <laughs> kooky hotel, and I don't even need to be home alone. I just want it to be called the Plaza Hotel Alone 2 or something <laughs> like that. Like, I, just, I want more kooky staff. Like, they're great, so... Even the uptight lady, she's great. She's such a cartoon caricature. <laughs> we needed a show like White Lotus to be done about all of them, you know, where it's like not about the guests, but about the hotel staff. You've had me at Tim Curry, so, I mean. Yeah, uh, right? <laughs> um, and my recast is going to be, I'm going to put Angela Gothels back in as uh, Lenny, uh, Lenny McAllister. Uh, you know, I, I tipped it earlier, but... Um, I really enjoyed Behind the Mask of the Rise of Leslie Vernon, and I, I kind of looked it up and I said neither of these two people who star in this movie have. They're both very funny, and I really wish they had been in more movies. And so I'm gonna say, I wish that she had stuck with Home Alone too and gotten more more movies from there too, because she's she's she grows up and does a very funny movie as an adult too. So um, maybe recency bias there, but uh, best shot. Lizzie. My favorite shot was the 
editing in which they were zooming in on the Grinch's smile and then faded into Tim Curry's smile. I think that was just so brilliant. And honestly, it's just a nod to Tim Curry because the fact that he's able to do that with his face is unbelievable. Like that menacing smile where he is just so delighted that he has caught Kevin McAllister red-handed. And I just, I think that scene was brilliant. We really were robbed, maybe not of a whole movie, but a TV special or even a Saturday Night Live sketch of Tim Curry being the Grinch. I, I feel like Agreed. I feel like we as humans were robbed of that. Um, John, best shot. Uh, well, uh, actually watching it this time, something that uh, I, I realized I forgot I liked so much is the shot when they're in the baggage claim. Hmm. Um First off, how what Buzz is doing, he never helps at all. He's just got his hand on his chin. But when it gets to Kieran Culkin at the end, <clears throat> they make sure to like look at the old couple next to him, like from a de- like an upward angle, like I mean, a downward angle. Like, they're looking up at him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but it's just a interestingly shot sequence that it wouldn't be easy to set up. Like, yeah, they go down the line like a fire bucket brigade. And they go to yeah. progressively younger and younger members. You're right. That adds to the comedy on how it's shot there. I always like it when the camera elevates a comedic moment. So that's a very good choice there. And I can't, it's just, again, us millennials liking things for the way they are. But it didn't get made with this kind of presence. But seeing Kevin McAllister on top of the World Trade Center and the, the they pay for a very expensive helicopter at this point. This isn't I don't believe this is a computer trick and it zooms out to show the New York skyline from the top of the World Trade Center and there's this it's gone kind of feeling of like um yeah that was that was the way New York was and what a fixture it was in the skyline. So I'm picking this for a profound kind of feeling of Wow, when the World Trade Center appears in film, it it has this like haunting kind of feeling of like, wow. So, sorry to go Great. deep on. Yes, yeah, sorry to. I'm just bringing you down now. I I I, I Chicago'd <laughs> your New York, and then I reminded you of 9/11. Sorry, I mean, John. It did make me wonder what it would be like to go up to it. Yeah, that is an impressive shot. John, it's an expensive one. They had 28 million dollars to work with, so. Uh, John Hughes and sorry, Chris Columbus was using it. <laughs> um, uh, John, pick us up here though. Uh, best scene. Um, I'm actually going to go with the turtle dove scene. Uh, Where I think Duncan gives one. it to him or when he <laughs> yes, gives it. Uh, just okay. kind of the exchange between them. It's like so honest in a certain way and kind of like that childlike, uh, you know, bluntness, like you were talking about before. And, it's uh, just what the the fund is going toward. And, you know, Kevin does care. He does have, like, a good heart. He might be kind of a rebel. But, you know, you've got a guy that is, you know, running this place and uh, probably makes tons of money, but just does small gestures like that. No, that's a very... It's a very warm scene. Duncan would have probably gotten my Hidden Gem in other movies, but... This one was so loaded up. You're right, John. That was a great scene. Good choice. Um, Lizzie, best scene. So I put the other turtle dove scene where Kevin gives the second turtle dove to the pigeon lady. And that 
when I was a kid, that stuck with me a lot. And I just, I thought that was such a sweet scene. I do definitely agree that as far as scary characters turned nice, the old man Marley definitely has more of the, he's way more touching, but also just the idea of like, here you keep this and like, we'll be friends forever. And just seeing that, how she was so lonely and she was just craving human connection and how a little kid who's just, again, just so blunt and honest is is able to give her that connection so sweet and i actually have a friend who shares uh love of home alone too and i last year for christmas i gave her uh, because they they make of course like replicas of the turtle dove ornament so i i actually have one and i gave them to her so i i love the turtle doves it's fundamental all right that's a great choice and you guys, you guys are. You, John has a turtle dove. Lizzie has a turtle dove. You'll forever be friends. So um, uh, that's right. Well, those those were all very touching moments. But I'm gonna go for mayhem. The booby traps going off, and then the renovated house is why we are all here. It takes an hour and a half before Kevin starts to set it up, and they play that like getting prepped music. And that gets you pumped. That gets your blood coming. Like you, like you know, it's you're like, oh right, he's setting up booby traps, and and they don't disappoint. Right music. Yeah, and they don't they don't disappoint at all when it delivers. So, um, you know, I I remember maybe thinking it was like he let him into the house too easily, but then it didn't matter. It was just, it was all so good, so good. So, bricks all the way up to. Uh, Kevin leaving and dialing the phone on the street. I'm going to ask, am I cheating? Is this all one scene in your guys' mind? Because there are cuts, and it goes back and forth between Marv and Harry. Am I overstepping my bounds for what the rule of a scene is? I was wondering that myself, actually, when deciding this one. I was like, can I say that? Because that was the only other contender. Because it is a long sequence. It is. It is. It's probably 15, 18 minutes of just pretty hard laughs so i'm lizzie am i allowed to do that i think it counts i think it's all one sequence so it is it's intended to feel like one long clip i i think it counts all right um best wardrobe or makeup moment john um i'm actually gonna go with the pigeon lady i just think they you know did that outfit being kind of what she was. They like, kindly well. removed was, a lot of poop, though. They, they <laughs> kindly removed a lot of poop, but sure uh, it was one of the unique costumes in the film. Uh, I was really and, sad, Kevin's bluntness of like, I always thought you would have had more poop on you. How do you do that? <laughs> um, so, um, Lizzie, uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment? So this is a little random, but I... One thing that I love about the 90s is that there's just very bold fashion choices. And I noticed on the woman that slaps uh, Marv and also on Kevin's mom that they both wear these really big gold, almost like door knocker earrings. (laughs) And it's such a staple of the 90s. And I got to be honest, I want to bring it back. Like we need to bring it, bring back the big gaudy costume jewelry because it's just so fun, and I'm here for it. Wow, um, and you are right. It's like Kevin's bedspread. 
I think those are the things that aged for me the most in this movie of just like uh, Catherine O'Hare or Ali Sheedy's hair of just like, or like you said, some of the style choices and stuff like that. Like, I mean, sometimes it's just like both of them, like they're both really beautiful women. And it's just like, it's just like, wow, we were really lingering in the eighties here hard. <laughs> like, I mean, there was, there was an eighties hangover. It was for real. Like peak eighties is like at the end of the eighties and it does show in this movie of like it carries through. I remember Chris Columbus said that he made style choices in the first movie to not date the movie. They intentionally avoided a lot of graphic designs on shirts or things that would really date a movie to being like, oh, that's an 80s movie, or an early 90s movie. So um, it is on his radar to you know, put Kevin in sweaters or things like that that aren't going to, like, age a ton. And he, to his credit, I think it, it does, for the most part, work. But as you said, Liz, uh, Lizzie, there's these moments where it's just like, wow, that that hair. Or, like, um, <laughs> I had Rob Schneider's hair. It just, um, it it's just part of this, you know, the white gloves, the hair. I mean, there's this, uh, him holding his hand out with that really stiff, I don't know what do you, I don't know what you call this do, but it's pulled up like that's a lot of volume for a man to have on top of his head. Um, so it it makes him look I don't know like a SpongeBob SquarePants kind of like it's just it's it's, it's very block very blocky and stuff. And so it's like it's like nope I've already got my tip from last time. And like even as he wiggles his little head around, like it makes it makes it seem more animated. So something about him seems like a bobblehead. So. Um, uh, other other 90sism that we don't have anymore of names on backpacks and this movie shows you why you don't do it anymore <laughs> right oh my gosh that was a huge thing that one particular brand and everybody would get there i forget what it was but everybody would put their initials or their name on the backpack so big as a kid chad definitely had one of those and his initials were car and people would be like car <laughs> beep car. beep vroom vroom he did not enjoy that, so don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> change one thing if you had to. Lizzie, this is going to hurt you probably the hardest, I think. So change one thing. <laughs> I would, uh, you know, there, so there's this sweet scene where it's the first night in New York, and Kevin, you know, they have this cute shot where Kevin's looking out into the sky. He's like, good night, Mom. And then it cuts to Catherine O'Hara, and she's looking out the window in Florida, and it's raining. She's like, good night, Kevin. And I think it kind of just goes back to what I had mentioned earlier at the very beginning of the recording, where I just, I, I want a little bit more stress coming from Catherine O'Hara. Like, I'm just trying to put myself in that shoes. You know, I have three kids, but my six-year-old, I, God forbid anything like this ever happen. I mean, I going to be a complete and utter mess like so i just i would imagine i wanted a little bit more emotional range from her particularly in that scene because i think that they missed the mark on that they had a good opportunity to be emotional and i think they i think you're i think you're describing the desperation she had in the first movie but you're you've put yourself in the shoes of a parent that really screwed up you need to put yourself in the, the shoes of a parent who's really screwed up twice Twice, right? Yes, it's like two thousand. So you're just at this point, you might be coming to peace with like I'm an inept parent. I, you know, I mean, it's a 
despite my despite my income and how I provide for my family, I'm not good at this. <laughs> like, let's see, uh, John, change one thing. Well, so <clears throat> actually, I've, one thing I, I think I would change is maybe where they were going because you know Florida to New York, it, it just seems a little too accessible and like something that you know kind of like you're saying like a, a parent wouldn't be like scrambling to get back like in the first one is like france we get the complications of that specifically it's like there's an ocean between you like you know make it make it a little harder a little more feasible that it's like there's no way you can get up there at all yeah like um mine mine's gonna be i want kevin to get spotted in the airport by Marv and and uh, Harry early and run. I don't want him to make a conscious choice to be like, hey, I'm going to go joyriding in New York. I want him to get off the airplane and in the concourse see Marv and Harry having come to New York themselves. And then he thinks he's lost them. And then they have like these little playing around like where they almost cross paths three times. I... I think it would just be more rewarding to have Kevin think he just got away from them. And then later that like one third part of the movie where they actually do encounter each other outside of the toy store. And Kevin gives him one of a very good scream, by the way, <laughs> which would make any, <laughs> which would make anybody like back off from a child screaming like that. <laughs> like, I'm not grab, I'm not touching him. I'm not touching him. <laughs> like, that's textbook. What you do as a child, by the way. So, <laughs> If, if if a threatening man comes your way, that's what you do. Um, so I want I want Kevin to engage with them sooner, think he got away with them, and then reconnect there. So and in doing so, it makes it less of Kevin choosing to run away and joyride in New York, and more of an immediate. I didn't have time to think about this, so maybe I'm thinking about it too much. But that's my that's my change one thing. Best quote of which there are many good ones. John. Yeah, th- this one was a tough one, but you can have some runner-ups too if you need. Well, uh, one of them first is actually his recording uh, w- when he's booking the hotel, and yeah. uh, specifically when he says, "This is Peter McAllister, the father." It's like even when I was a kid, <laughs> I was like, "Who adds that in? Like, why would you do that?" <laughs> The father. <laughs> um, but, and it's also just one of my favorite exchanges is uh, when uh, Kevin's uh, talking about when Uncle Frank's in the shower and what he says to him, the parents' reaction. He's like, whatever that means. Like, that's. <laughs> These are good ones. These are good ones. Um, Lizzie, best quote. I gotta say, I just love the scream when. It's because it's a it's a call, classic callback from first Home Alone when Johnny had mentioned this before the little sequence with the bag at baggage claim where it's like oh this is Kevin's this is Kevin's and then they make their way back of Kevin's not here Kevin's not here and then finally when it finally dawns on them like Kevin and then she just falls over because it's just the perfect callback it's the it's the same as the wet bandits and the music and just kind of all the things pulling it all in together to give you the experience you want. Well, I'm surprised neither of you guys picked. It's down the hall and to the left. So. 
Um, so right, if you noticed. Oh, did he? Wow. I yeah. did not notice that. That's funny. Is that a sign of things to come? Because he was a lifelong oh, Democrat no. at that point before he... So he said to go left, but then he went right. No? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, mine is going to be the, um, you know, get out of here, you little pervert. I'm going to slap you, silly. And then um, Kevin leaves r- laughing. And then Gary Bamming goes, oh, you're cooking, Frankie. <laughs> Um, but i did like that whole interchange between of like smell that yeah what's that smell freedom (laughs) no it's fish it's freedom and it's money okay it's freedom okay come on let's go before somebody sees us and it's fish (laughs) and actually uh one i wanted to mention uh when you were talking about macaulay culkin and the, the sarcasm thing uh, when Rob Schneider's like, do you, do you know how to work the TV? And he's like, I'm 10. Like, TV's my life. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Another good moment with a no-name butler who should have been subbed in for Steve Buscemi now that it was mentioned. But this no-name, this no-named, uh, like, you know, uh, concierge person, not concierge person, but room service person was giving him ice cream. He's like, two scoops, sir? And he's like, no, make it three. I'm not driving. <laughs> I have thought about that line in an ice cream parlor before. Like, of just like two scoops. Hmm. I'm not driving. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, I, uh, I definitely like the, um, the uh, Kevin line also as Catherine O'Hare delivers uh, the, the, the mandatory Kevin. This is classic. And if Daniel Stern's scream counts as a quote, then. <laughs> For sure. That's in there, too. <laughs> All right. Well, we have come full circle here, and in the Christmas spirit, we can go with Christmas stars. Um, five stars on half-star intervals. John, what do you give Home Alone 2? Colon, Lost in New York. I'm going to give it four stars. You know, as we've discussed, I, I still think it holds up. It is a lot of nostalgia for me, but it's just... Like, there's warmness, but a lot of physical comedy. It's just the right combination for me. Yeah. Great choice there. Lizzie, can you top that? I'm going five stars. I I just, there's nothing I would really change about this movie. I just think it's fantastic. And for all of the critics that, you know, were not in that 35%, I, I just, I think it's, you know what you're getting when you turn this movie on. You know you're going to get slapstick. You know it's going to be fun, a little campy, uh, but also have some sentimental fun moments in it too. And I think for what you know you're getting, it just delivers it perfectly. Yeah, and I'm so happy to see you go five there. It makes me makes me happy as well. And and by the way, the critics were pretty cool on the original too. They only gave the original one a 67. The audience likes it a lot more at 80. But neither of these movies have the approval rating for the cultural impact that they had. And they really are big grossing ones that, you know, the movies weren't made specifically for kids 10 years ago in the eighties, like when this comes out. So this unlocks a box office demographic and it didn't do it with like a Pixar movie either necessarily. So um, there's something about the PG comedy that has really fallen off the radar that I kind of miss, and this is, it's extra special, because it wasn't there before, 
and it's not really there a lot later. And John Hughes is responsible for a lot of it, to be honest with you. So um, I'm going to go with four stars with John on this one. But I I feel like I like it more than four, but I know that the original one for me is a five, as we covered before. And I think it was in the sentimentality. I'm a sucker for all that warm, fuzzy Christmas stuff. Yeah. And, you know, like, like I got my son's back and I got to give him a hug and all that stuff. And I do think those moments where you said, I feel like she's got to try a little harder to get back to her kid. She did all that. She rode in a polka touring van with John Candy and stuff like that. And um, she was sitting there crying, like, I'm a terrible parent. He's like, no, no. And when, like, even in his age, he's like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, these are, these, are, these are small differentiators. And I was leaning 4.5 or 4, but I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go with John on this one and go 4. But um, All right. Lizzie, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. Yeah, we're headed to the Wild West. Option number one, Young Guns from 1988. A group of young gunmen led by Billy the Kid becomes deputies to avenge the murder of, a, of the rancher who became their benefactor. But, but Billy takes their authority too far, and they become the hunted. Option two, The Wild Bunch from 1969. An aging group of outlaws for go out for one last big score as the traditional American West is disappearing around them. And option number three, The Professionals from 1966. An arrogant Texas millionaire hires four adventurers to rescue his kidnapped wife from a notorious Mexican bandit. Okay. Let's go for The Professionals. I'm in, I'm in for a little luxury millionaire stolen A-team. Let's go for it. All right. Put on those spurs. Gather those lassos. Get your cowboy hats. We're going to go to the Wild West on this one. So, <laughs> All right. And John, thank you, sir. The Godfather himself for gracing the presence of the podcast again. Uh, <laughs> I'm never going to get over you calling me that. But no, thank you. It's always great to be here. All right. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio, but hey, it helps us out. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at admovie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free. So we invite you to become one of the supporters of our show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. You'll get our early beta episodes and a lot more of John on those. So any contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? If you think this is big, wait till you see the toast. I couldn't even get it through the door.